Uh, historian Daniel Borstein suggests that North Americans suffer from all true, too extravagant expectations. All too extravagant expectations. So he has this book. It's a much quoted book. I'm going to share a quote from you called The Image. Uh, and in his book, uh, he makes this observation. So let me bring this up. Here's what he says. He says, we expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars, with, which are spacious. Uh, luxury cars, which are economical. But we expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, active and yet reflective, kind and competitive, we expect to eat, this is me, and stay thin, to be constantly on the move and ever more neighborly, to go to a church of our choice and yet feel it's God's guiding power over us, to revere God, to be God. And he goes on to say, never have people been more the masters of their environment, yet never has a people felt more deceived and disappointed. For never has the people expected so much more than the world could offer. That's a lot to soak in, isn't it? Isn't it amazing how our expectations really shape us? Isn't it? For good or for bad, our expectations really change reality for us. I was once told by a therapist friend of mine that our unmet expectations are often the foundation of all of life's anger and disappointment. Look at that again. Our unmet expectations are often the foundation of much of life's anger and disappointment. Expectations really do shape us. And this is the continuing situation uh, with Jesus and his followers, and we're going to pick up the story in Mark chapter 10 today. Mark Chapter 10 is where we're going to pick up the story. And what they expect is that they will be the future leaders of this movement. That Jesus is going to set up his kingdom, and they expect that they are going to be large and in charge. However, the type of kingdom that Jesus has in mind is something very different. And the type of follower he has in mind is very different than what they expect. The type of disciple Jesus has in mind is nothing like they expect, in fact. And their expectations have shaped them significantly. All right? So we're going to look at the first half of this chapter. And then next week, Elaine, our host this morning, she's going to pick up right where we leave off and cover the second half next week of chapter 10. Okay? So I want to just kind of remind you of the context. There have been up in Galilee, and now they're moving back down. They're moving down towards Jerusalem. They're on the road to Jerusalem, and Jesus and his followers are still in between, but they're on the road to Jerusalem. They're almost there, which means, and Jesus knows this, that the near, his days are nearly over, that he's going to enter Jerusalem and something's going to happen, right? So as they're on the road, on the road to Jerusalem, they encounter some teachers of the law, some Pharisees who have picked an issue that they're going to try to trap Jesus with, all right? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this issue, and the issue is marriage and divorce. That's the one that they're going to try to trap him with. So let's look at this. It starts 
in uh, Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 2. All right, let's look at this. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered them, Well, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, in the law of Moses, which is in Deuteronomy chapter 24, where Jesus is, is there thinking about and they're referring to, in the law of Moses, a man could divorce his wife. That was allowed. Moses allowed that. He could divorce her. She could not divorce him. He could divorce her. She could not divorce him. And the divorce could only be initiated by the husband. And he could divorce her if he just woke up one day and didn't love her anymore. He could just dismiss her. But of course, if she woke up and didn't love him, maybe she never loved him in the first place. If she woke up and didn't love him, she had to stick it out. Too bad, right? And you may be wondering why this was the test. Why was this the issue that they were going to try to trap him in? And I think they're going to try to trap him in one of two ways. There's, there's two different ways Jesus could respond to this, and either way he's going to get trapped. The first one, Jesus could go against the law of Moses, okay? He could go against it, and he could reverse what Moses had said. But what that would do, that would put him at odds with a lot of Jewish men who have divorced their wives. Uh, and also it put him in the crosshairs of that puppet King Herod who had divorced his wife and who had uh, married her sister, his sister-in-law. And John the Baptist had called out against him and lost his head over that comment about King Herod and divorce. So that's one thing. He could oppose the law of Moses and make a lot of people mad and possibly put him in the crosshairs of King Herod. Secondly, he could go with the law of Moses. And a lot of people would like that. They'd like to hear that. But then there's a lot of Jesus' followers who were formerly John the Baptist followers who probably would stop following him because their guy lost his head over this. How can he go against that? John gave his life for this. And probably there's a lot of those women who are also part of Jesus' group who are wondering, is he going to catch this? Is he going to stick up for what's right for women? And so that's most likely, my guess, the test. One of those two things, no matter which way he goes, someone's not going to be happy, right? So let's see how Jesus responds. Look at verse 5. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he, Moses, wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, and he's quoting Genesis 1.27 here, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, and in other words, because of, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer one. I'm sorry, they're no longer two, <laughs> but they become one flesh. Now I want you to notice the language here. They say, Moses allowed for the divorce. Jesus says, God put man and woman together. They're referring to Moses, and, and, and when Moses said this, it was after the fall of mankind, way after. 
after Genesis chapter 3. And Jesus is backing up before Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 1. You see, Jesus isn't so much contradicting the law of Moses. He's actually explaining the condition that Moses had put that in there, that God allowed Moses to put this in. Because of the sin, there was this allowance for this sin. But listen, this is not what God intended. This is what Jesus is saying. Look at, let's look at how he concludes this. Look at verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so there you have it. He has stepped right into their trap. And there's the potential now of all these Jewish people being even madder at him and even Herod coming after him. Uh, interesting enough, however, uh, nothing really actually comes of this trap. We never hear anything else about it. That's the last we hear of it. But I want to take a closer look at it because I think Jesus is saying something here that even his disciples kind of catch on to, but they're not sure about, right? They're like, there's more to what's going on here. There's more than what meets the eye. And so we see this later on. They don't expect it, and they're not expecting it. And so they ask him, what's different? They know that this is not the kind of discipleship that the Jewish leaders have modeled for them. And so they're wondering what's different. And so let's look at that. They're, they're still not quite clear. Let's look at that at verse 10. So in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Okay, Jesus. All right, we're kind of with you on that. Although we've been taught we can do this, we kind of see how that's not what God intended, right? That's not what God intended. We, we get that part. Okay, but Jesus goes on. If she divorces her husband, wait, 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 stop right there. What do you mean she? Uh, that's not in the law of Moses, Jesus. There's no allowance for that. I mean, sure, it's still not what God intended, but why did you even throw that in there, Jesus? What are you up to? Jesus, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus is telling them that if the man leaves his wife and joins with another, the man has stepped outside of what God intended. He's missed the mark. It's sin. And it's the same if the woman does this too. In other words, in conclusion, divorce is not what God intended. Now, it may seem subtle, and it may seem like an odd way of saying it by talking about divorce, but Jesus has just leveled the playing field. He has just told men, you aren't any better than women. Oh, my goodness. Jesus and he is saying, you can't have double standards in my kingdom. And they did not expect to hear that. And of course, their entire culture is based on an unlevel playing field, right? The men are always treated better than the women. Jesus is pointing out this double standard, and he's saying in his kingdom, not so much. Not so much. It's such a subtle teaching that you could miss it. And when we look at this passage, even though the key focus of this section is truly about divorce, it's this trap, right? 
But he's trying to continue to break down this hierarchy that exists where men are large and in charge and women and other men who aren't Jewish, Gentiles, and children are under them. Now, let me say this, because I know a number of people listening right now, sitting here and listening online, and uh, people in my own family uh, have divorce in their life. I'm not accusing you. I'm not. Jesus is not accusing you. He is saying that divorce is not what God intended. It's not what anyone intends. No one gets married and does so with the intention of getting divorced. That's just ridiculous. In fact, let's paint with broader strokes, right? There's much that happens in all of our lives that is not what God intended. It's not what we intended either. We start with an expectation, but it doesn't always work the way we hoped it would. Paul tells the the Roman church in, in chapter 3 of the book of Romans that we all have fallen short of what God intended. We all have sinned and, and fall short of what God intended. And just like he allowed Moses, he allows a lot of grace for us when we step outside of what he intends, if we come back to him. Sin is always outside the intention of what God has for us, always. And it should be noted there's a lot of situations in this passage that is not addressed as well about abuse, about abandonment, okay? Just to mention a few. And I think a major theme here, and, and the rest of chapter 10 supports this, and Elaine will show this next week, is much less about divorce and much more about changing the attitudes this expectation that we, these men, we, the disciples, are going to be in charge of everything. He wants to reorient their way of thinking, okay? So let's get back to our passage, because in the next scene we look at, I think it will confirm what I'm saying right here as well, okay? So while he's hanging out, and he's teaching, and he's being tested by these Pharisees, there's something else going on in the background. There are parents there with their kids. Two, three-year-olds, maybe one-year-olds crawling around. Um, and, and it's not that unusual in his day and age for, children, for parents to bring their children to kind of holy men or teachers or something and have them kind of put their hands on them and bless them and pray for them. Uh, maybe it's, it's kind of akin to something we do like when we do infant dedication, uh, something like that. So it wasn't that strange, all right? But maybe it seemed to annoy Jesus' disciples. Maybe, you know, he was putting it to the Pharisees, and they're like, hey, don't get in the way. He's giving it to them, right? You know, maybe they didn't like that. Or maybe they just didn't value children. They were here. Children were down here. And it's not that unusual in their culture. Children were close to the lower parts socially in their culture. But something happened that they didn't expect. They angered Jesus. They ticked him off. Look what happens. Look at verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was 
indignant. And he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. There's actually a whole sermon in these uh, four verses right here, maybe a couple of sermons. So we're just going to touch on a few points, okay? Look at verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. The, I looked up the, the translation for this word, and the English word indignant is actually putting it kindly. Jesus was ticked off. He was angry. Well, what's going on here with Jesus? I mean, what's going on? Well, first, he seeks to elevate the playing field with the women, and now he's kind of saying children are important too. What are you, what are you doing here, Jesus? What's going on? What's going on in this passage? And why does it seem to make you so mad? Why are you indignant, Jesus? The children are at the bottom of the social hierarchy, Jesus. Has no one told you that? And the disciples are treating them that way, and it's an attitude that they have that's off-putting to Jesus, I think. And Jesus doesn't want the people who are in his kingdom to have that attitude. So he uses this situation with these children coming as a teaching moment for his disciples and for us too as well. The teaching moment is this. You don't come up here with what you bring to God. You come to God as a child. Not someone who's got money. Not someone who's got status. Who's got education. Not someone who's got this entitlement. I'm sorry, that's my southern accent. Entitlement. <laughs> someone last a couple weeks ago said, I didn't understand that word you said. Entitlement. Okay. It's not a matter of right or privilege. The kingdom comes as a gift. The kingdom is unearned. It's God's love and his expression of love. It's unearned in its grace. And that's the terms of the kingdom. And you see, in both of these situations, Jesus is changing their attitudes, changing their expectations. He's telling them it's opposite than what you think. And this is very important. You've got to catch this. The kingdom, here it is, the kingdom is not about being served, but being a servant. And the people expected for everyone else to be under them. And he's saying, nope, you're going to be under them. He says it really clearly. I'm going to just skip down and cover something that Elaine's going to cover because he says it so clearly right here in verse 43. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. If you're paying attention, and you were paying attention last week, you'll see some parallels to chapter 9. Uh, I don't know if it was a few days or a few weeks before when Jesus said this, but he said some of the very same words. Let's quickly look at this uh, in chapter 9 that uh, Peter covered last week. And he sat down, and he called the 12, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, sound familiar, he must be last of all, servant of all, 
And then he does something similar with children. He took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking them in his arms. He said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. And so maybe the fact that he needs to kind of repeat himself so often is kind of what's getting so frustrating for Jesus. I know if you're like me, I get frustrated when I have to repeat myself often. Uh, my wife gets very frustrated with me because I'm hard of hearing, and she, I'm always saying, huh, huh? And she has to repeat herself. It's frustrating. But, you know, I wonder. I know it's hard for them then. But I wonder, is it really that much different from us now? No, no, I don't think that we have some of these attitudes of us men, at least we're learning not to, uh, that we're above everybody else. You know, I I think we're learning more about the value of children and other people in our culture. Maybe we're not quite as guilty. But there's still this attitude that we have that's really sometimes not so much different. And, and I, I know I'm guilty of this. I think that we don't believe that serving will actually give us the life that we long for. We're afraid that if we give, that if we do this, we actually lose. That when it comes to serving or giving money or investing our time, that it will cost us more than we'll gain. We believe first is first, that last is last, more is more, and less is less. There is no servant math. That's not our expectation, right? And so Jesus is still, I think, wanting to change us too today. Our expectations. He's wanting to change our value system. He's wanting to change our hearts. He's wanting to say his is a kingdom of serving. And during this whole series, we keep coming back to who is Jesus? And and how should I respond to him? What should my response be to Jesus? And today we see that he is not, again, what they expected. He's leveling the playing fields. He's taking things upside down, and he's changing things. And we're going to pick up on that theme next week as we look at the rest of chapter 10. Here's what I want to close with, and here's what I want to challenge us with this week. Can I invite you, can I challenge you maybe to look at chapter 10 on your own this week? Read it even in a few different versions. Read it in that weird version that... uh, Garth talked about, or read it in an amplified version, and read a commentary on it if you want to. But look at the rest of chapter 10, and look at it with that last section that I read in mind. Whoever wants to be great must be servant of all. Is that what you expect when you decide to follow Jesus? Are we really much different than his disciples and the Pharisees who see this hierarchy, who would see the world as we think it should be with other people below us? Do we actually, come on, let's be honest. Do we think that first is first and last is last and more is more and less is less? Do we find our hearts resisting a servant-hearted attitude? 
do we secretly think we're actually better than other people? Especially when we compare ourselves to other people. Do we think that we deserve the kingdom of God more than someone else? Is there a bit of self-righteousness in us? Or can we hear these words of Jesus? Whoever wants to be great among you must be last, must be servant of all. That is so different than what our world teaches us. It was for them, and it really is today too. And so let me challenge you. Look at chapter 10, maybe even back up to chapter 9. Look at it again and hear these words of Jesus and allow them to challenge you in your heart to see what God will do with this in your own life. Let me pray for us.